I think that we have a discerning voice, uh, judge in the best sense, the wise judge. And I think it's up to us to find ways to transform that voice into a, a voice that's on the same team as the rest of us, that we feel like we are working in the same direction. So that you cultivate an ability to forgive yourself, to be understanding, to be encouraging, to be the best friend that you can be to yourself because you have the opportunity to be with yourself 100% of the time. Nobody else is going to do that for you. It is an inside job. host and Emily Ken. And before we start with today's show, please remember to visit mindset.zone. Yes, instead of .com, it's .zone. There you can find all the episodes and other amazing resources, all at mindset.zone. Today, our special guest is Linda Ubelow, and she is a keynote speaker and a speaking confident coach who helps entrepreneurs, corporate leaders, authors to transform their experience of speaking from dread to delight, whether they show up online or on stage, or in the media, or in a meeting room. And she's also the author of The Light in the Limelight. Overcome your fear of being seen and realize your dreams. Welcome to the Mindset Zone, Linda. I am delighted to be here with you, Anna. And I read your book that is really beautifully written and very inspirational and very practical at the same time. So congrats about the book. Thank you. And when I was preparing this interview, because public speaking, we all have to communicate and speak. And even if we don't speak on stage, we have to be able to, in our day to day, to succeed now more than ever doing some kind of public speaking. And uh, I always think about uh, Jerry Seinfeld with that famous joke that he has about public speaking. That is something like uh, that most studies, they say that people, number one fear is public speaking and the number two fear is death, uh, dying and the always says that. So does that mean that an average person, if they go to a funeral, it's better off to be in casket than doing the elegy? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yes, it's so. What a riot. Yeah. And okay, puts the maybe, no, maybe we'll prefer to do the public speaking, but let's learn from people like you to do it in a way that is a delight and not, oh my gosh, I really, this is driving myself and not being able to succeed and that one of the stories that you tell in the book is your own experience that you were a person that public speaking was not the more natural thing, or you could freeze in the stage too, correct? Absolutely. In fact, I had been a performer for over 30 years with dance and music, but anytime I had to introduce a song, I froze up. I was you know, anyone who's afraid of speaking know the symptoms, the palpitations, heart palpitations, sweaty pits, dry mouth, uh, jitters. Some people blush. Some people feel nauseous, all of these things. I, and it would definitely screw me up in my performance as well, because if I knew that I was going to have to introduce a song in four 
more pieces, those four pieces ahead of time, I would be distracted and I would make mistakes and I wasn't present. And why do you think that is so common, this being afraid of speaking and the public speaking in particular? I think we live in a society that sets us up for feeling self-conscious and afraid of judgment, afraid of making mistakes, afraid of looking foolish. We grow, first of all, our educational system is constructed around that, that we get graded for making the fewest mistakes. We get the top grades for making no mistakes. So there isn't a an atmosphere of experimentation and trying things out and taking risks. In fact, that's discouraged in yeah. a lot of places because you want to make the grade. And there's also all of the, you know, classrooms are hard to manage, ask any teacher. And so there's this desire from the teacher's point of view to have everything organized and everything controlled. And, and then they have to teach for the test. So they're not teaching you how to feel relaxed in front of the room, right? They're teaching you to, <laughs> they're, they're looking for the correct data, the correct things to say. And I think this just sets us up for anxiety right mm -hmm. out of the gate, whether or not you were at the top of your class and you feel like you're a failure if you get a 97 or if you perform in a way or speak in a way that feels like it's not perfect. Or if you felt like you weren't good enough because you were, you know, the student that struggled. That's not even mentioning what goes on in our home growing up. And yeah. as we know, unfortunately, you know, not everybody has had the, the benefit of a nurturing, supportive environment with parents that were eager to hear what their kids have to say and listen to them. And a lot of times they're passing down messages that they heard, like children should be silent or don't speak unless spoken to, or your thoughts aren't important. Uh, this is adult. Uh, this is the adult table, yeah. you know, like all these things that, and if you, it's like, what do, message does that give us? And what are the beliefs that come out from hearing these things or having actual hurtful experiences like being shamed or punished or hurt or diminished or ridiculed or bullied. Any of these things are going to make us feel like it's not safe to be seen. Because when you were describing the situation in the classroom, I was thinking that he, he, he goes to the art of our basic needs of belonging, of being accepted in the group mm -hmm. and being put in the spotlight Oh, if I say the wrong thing, mainly like you're saying, if the wrong thing is seen, oh my gosh, you don't belong here. Uh, you have to know the right answer. That is a pressure that is really heavy in a child. And uh, uh, like you're saying in the house, in the day, how do you say, in our, when we grow up, and I even, uh, I'm, I really like the school where my daughter is, is uh, since uh, kindergarten because they, since they are little ones, they had this uh, in lower school. They used to have this um, morning circle that all the schools start together, and and they always had some of the kids saying something in the microphone. So from the beginning, they uh, create and they make it fun and they make it so the day-to-day -day of uh, the culture of the place that they had to, it's not a big deal to go in front of a mic that I think is great. And at the same time, that doesn't mean that kids, even with that, don't feel anxious when it's their time to presenting 
or to listen. I remember in middle school, my daughter' problem was not so much the presenting. What was her dress was have a video of a presentation that she had done, and she had to be one of members of the audience also seeing her video. That was really tough for her. So each one have their own pickle. Uh, quirks about what trigger us. And like you were saying, uh, in our history, we will have these big traumas or micro traumas that uh, make us, when is that moment of speaking, have all that anxiety related with it. That's right. It's inside us and it is. it gets triggered to remind us to be careful like remember what happened then and you may not remember you may not be aware of it but the body remembers and it's part of the neurophysiology so you know as a teenager to be shown a video in front of the whole school or the classroom if you don't feel completely accepted by everybody and you're worried about what other people think that can feel very embarrassing and that can be an embarrassing moment and if you don't feel at, on the other side of it, if you feel comfortable with how you are and and you're amu- even amused by yourself and, you know, everybody laughs and you're laughing with them, then it's a fun experience. But it's all the setting that things happen in. And nowadays in our professional life, uh, even though they say we are in the both of us in the online and in the speaking world, so that is a given. But even nowadays, post COVID or during the COVID, that being in Zoom, it became a thing. Doing social media, uh, doing videos, and I, I from the book from your book, you tell the story of your own challenge to do the videos in Periscope. Uh, and the thing, okay, I'm going, how many were 30 days, 30 videos, something like that was like a challenge. And you, you thought, okay, when I arrive to the end of that uh, uh, that trial, I will be, fear is gone of speaking in the video. But it was still there. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. <laughs> a Periscope was was a really scary experience for me at the beginning because there was no algorithm there. Anyone who posted could be found from anyone in the world who was on the app. They had a map. So if there was a dot in Boston, someone could say, oh, who's this person talking in Boston? So you would see names of people on the app scrolling from India and France and California and Australia, whatever. It was like, oh my God, you know, everybody is here. And I'd feel my whole, it was like my, I left my body and I kind of like floated up in the air. And I reached out to my my video mentor at the time who had told me about the app and it said, does everyone feel like this? And she said, oh, don't worry, Linda, you'll get over it. It takes about, you know, 10 weeks or 75 days. So not 30, it was like 75. And when I heard that, I thought, oh man, you know, okay, I'm going to brace myself. I'm going to do this. And I looked up online how to manage my fear. And I found all this wonderful, well-meaning advice like, Um, imagine the fear is fuel for your energy, or I would try deep breathing and meditation and power poses and um, affirmations, you name it. I'm sure I tried it. And the thing is that it did help. It helped me get on every single day and get through the experience. And I felt like I got better at 
presenting myself on video. I, as you know, I was a performer, so I just was, at, excuse me, adding this element of, of speaking. But then I got to day 75. And I went to press broadcast as I, after I did all my rituals. And I thought, why is my heart still pounding? You know, you. Th- I really thought that after daily broadcasting that I, and, and the experience, everyone says, oh, with experience, you'll gain confidence. But it didn't work for me. And yes, I was showing up. I was managing it, but I didn't want to have to manage it. I just wanted to get rid of this fear. So I decided I was going to just said, I'm going, I'm going to, I'm sure I have the, the tools here. Let's figure it out. I I have a master's degree in expressive arts therapy, done a ton of personal development. I was a performer. I mean, I had all these things. So I made a list of all the tools that I had. And the first thing I tried was a technique called focusing where you close your eyes and you feel inside your body for where that feeling or anxiety is, is kind of residing. And I put my hands on my chest. I said, okay, what is this fear trying to say? And what came back was, I'm going to be attacked. And then immediately, I had the, the thought in my head of being attacked by my two older sisters when I was a kid. Whenever my mom put me in the center of attention, she would say, why can't you girls be more like Linda? And that was their cue to kick me in the shins and say, shut up, stupid. And that was a recurring theme in my family where my mom favored me visibly and vocally, and they were jealous. And now the thing is, I wanted their love. So anytime my mom brought this up, it was like, no, don't say that. Because <laughs> I knew was, it was going to happen. It was like putting the bold eye on you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And then when I had, after I, I was thinking about this memory, it was like, duh, of course I don't feel comfortable speaking because there's a part of me that remember the times it was dangerous to be the center of attention. And then I started to think, wow, the fear that I'm having has nothing to do with being on camera right now, but it has everything to do with what happened before. So what else happened before? And I started to comb through my memories of comments that had been made to me that, you know, when I was excluded in seventh grade by all the girls and they said, nobody talked to Linda. And what I ascribed from that was no one's interested in me. They don't want to hear what I have to say. People don't like me. So of course, even though, you know, I've had all this life experience and I have made friends and, you know, I've grown out of that. And even my sisters and I are, became really good friends. Still, there was that pattern in my neurophysiology and in my belief system that it wasn't safe to be the center of attention. It wasn't safe to speak. People wouldn't be interested in what I have to say. I'm afraid of people not liking me. All of these things kind of glom together to create this barrier in front of me whenever I spoke, even truthfully in one-to-one conversations. Wow. Because now, again, when you are speaking, I'm thinking about, because we are human beings, are connecting beings. We live in communities. We live in a pack in many ways. And if we think about other animals in nature that live in groups, they uh, you don't put a spotlight in an individual of the group because that means, oh, oh 
the lion is going to, I'm going to be the one that is going to be going after. So I think there there will be a wiring, a natural wiring for not being the center of attention that way, or only be okay to build the center of attention when there we feel safety around us. Because then we think about, for instance, the mating rituals in nature. They are calling attention to themselves, but usually they do that when they feel that there is no danger around. So if we perceive any kind of a danger, we retract to be just a notice, not being seen because it's safer. And the other interesting thing that you are saying in the book, you do it beautifully in the book, is that because most of the advice out there is pushing, pushing, pushing. Do it for 30 days. Do it for 75 days. It's going to be better. And even uh, what we know of the biology and psychology of emotions, the yes, the anxiety and excitement, the kind of physical sensations are similar. But if there is so much burden from before, if what that is triggering is our existence, that is going to be really uh, powerful to um, to freeze us. To uh, we don't have the capacity. I think is like to make that switch. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. I think what you're saying about the danger of standing out does have historical, and I'm talking about like pre-hierarchical uh, communities. So try more like tribal communities and people. I, I mean, personally, I believe that speaking is our human. I mean, obviously, speaking is our human design. Babies learn to speak. You don't have to teach them. They learn how to speak just by observation. They have this compulsion. It's it's part of human development naturally. And nobody has to be graded or, I mean, maybe there's um, mirroring or you say certain words and your child says something back, whatever. But they, everybody learns to speak unless they, there is a, you know, a physiological disability there. So perhaps let's say in the tribe, this is my imagination, of course, but I think there's some evidence to support this. Storytelling was a big part of communication and you are enveloped and in a safe space historically in a tribal community that is relies on everybody to pitch in and for the survival of the group. Perhaps the neighboring tribe, you know, putting yourself out there may be a little different. I want to tell a very quick story of a book I read called Boiling Energy. It was written by an anthropologist from Harvard, and he went to the the Kalahari Desert and studied the Kung people there. And they would have three nights a week, they would have these dance and singing events where the whole tribe, the whole community there would sing and clap around the fire while certain people, a bunch of people would dance around the fire in the hopes of going into some a trance and going over to the other side. And it was very difficult to do. And so they needed the whole energy of the entire tribe to do that. And it was a tribal effort because when that person went over there, and you never knew who it was going to be, then they were able to communicate with the spirits and they were able to see any kind of disease in in people and pull it out of them. And then maybe once a week or every twice or once a month, they would have these with neighboring communities in order to heal the any kind of discord between the two neighboring groups. And yeah, I know it's like, wow. Yes. <laughs> it's like, this is kind of showed me what our human potential 
is and maybe ways that we were living in the best of communities that we have lost along the way, especially in this kind of hierarchical world where we have the haves and the have-nots and the better-thens and the less-thens and the richer and the poor. You know, we have divisions and and kind of like this layering system, you know, around the world now. And I love that image because it shows that if we change the context, the culture, how we do things, uh, we can cultivate more the ability of communicating in a clear way and feel safe to be seen. Um, yes. Because you were referring in, for instance, with families in the meal time and uh, 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 what is the expression? Child, uh, child should be seen, but not uh, the okay. Let the adults. The adults is the one that know. So let them speak, and you be quiet. And yes, if we have lots of kids in the table, if we let or even adults, if we let everybody speak at the same time, nobody can listen to nobody. But we can maybe create like that circle that allows everybody to have a turn and feel special. Absolutely. I love that. And I do feel that each of us can play a part in creating more safe spaces in our families, in our workplaces, in our communities. And another thing that I think is one of the more meaningful mindset shifts that you pre present in your book is that, okay, what we spoke about, it's not a question of pushing, uh, but you also speak about fear isn't the villain. It's the messenger. Can you expand a little bit about that? Yes. If you look at fear as pointing to past experiences and messages that are asking to be resolved or healed, then it's actually a gift and an opportunity to have this speaking fear because we're able to then look at kind of clear up the stuff from the past that are holding us back in unseen ways. So for instance, if you recognize that, or I'll speak I have a, I'm working with a client right now whose mother was narcissistic. And when she was recognizing, well, of course she has this fear because she was never allowed to have her own opinions. She was never, you know, valued for what she wasn't her, she could never please her mom. So you take that, any of these experiences, any comment that comes up, any message that you remember, and you you drive it through a process of shifting the way it, you hold it inside you. So, you know, we ascribe meaning to the experiences we have. Oh, this means that, like I said about being excluded in, in seventh grade, this means that people don't like me. But if I can bring myself to journal about it, to do some creative visualization, I also love EFT, emotional freedom technique, using any of these techniques, whenever you have a memory that you suspect may be impacting you, to take some time, give yourself that gift of taking some time and and finding a way for it to come to a dif to different interpretations of it. I think the nuance here is everything because yes, fear is not a villain, but that doesn't mean that we just push through because in many ways, the push through the fear is just feeding it, increasing its strength is be able to silence the, the noises, the inner critics in, in the, all the voices in our heads to listen to what is that wiser part that can tell us the message. And it's really important, in my opinion, in so many cases, to have a guide to help us in that process. Yes, I think I think it does. Now, obviously, I 
didn't have a guide myself because I happened to have a lot of tools at my disposal. I just didn't know I needed to use my tools until until that day. You know, by the way, it took me five days to get over my fear. Once you knew the direction. Once I knew the direction to go. And and that is all they say. When I speak about the guide is that we can do it by ourselves. Yes, but there is loads of trial and error, mainly when we don't have the tools and take time. Having a guide, having a coach can accelerate the process in a huge way. And I think from your experience and this, what you summarize your system in your book is, okay, you can do this too. Here are the tools and uh, you can follow the book and get results and they can uh, uh, get you, you uh, as a coach and get even results faster. But is that there is a process to listen to the message behind the fear? And then we are able to transform that physical signs that we can label as anxiety. Then we can even trans- uh, interpret them as excitement, but we have to have the, the right foundation for being able to do that. Will you agree? Absolutely. I feel that if you, if someone listening to hear this podcast wants to get over their fear, it's foundational to clear any of these experiences from the past, to heal and resolve them. Then it's also important to heal the inner voice that you have, because you may be worried about what other people think, but it's very likely that you're carrying an inner bully inside, right? You know, you talk about that all the time. And I see that as a part of us that is also wounded and that is asking for healing. I don't think that it's in our nature to hate ourselves, to be so demanding. I think that we have a discerning voice, uh, judge in the best sense, you know, the, the wise judge. And I think it's up to us to, to find ways to transform that voice into a, a voice that's on the same team as the rest of us, that we feel like we are working in the same direction. So that you, you cultivate an ability to forgive yourself, to be understanding, to be encouraging, to be the best friend that you can be to yourself because you have the opportunity to be with yourself 100% of the time. Nobody else is going to do that for you. It is an inside job. Absolutely. I One of the frameworks that I work a lot is the positive intelligence framework of Sirzad Shamin and the he, yes, the system, the articulation of the system is, is simple, but so powerful because, yes, you recognize that uh, that inner critics, that we have a committee of inner critics many times inside our heads, and he calls it the saboteurs. And even there is an assessment for knowing the flavor of uh, our top inner critics. And then is the judge that preside the inner critics, and they are noisy, but they exist for a reason. We need them to survive psychologically in a certain moment of our lives. But then they overstay their welcome, so to speak. And now they are so noisy that don't let us listen to our wise self, that voice that can discern and really be our best friend. And a lot of the work in personal development from not reacting to being more proactive, because what the the inner critic take us to reaction, reaction, reaction. If we want to choose our response, we have to listen to that sage, to that wise self. And I think a lot of your work is about uncluttering all those noises and things from the past and allow people to connect more with their core, with their true essence. Yeah, that's it's so interesting. I think that there's so many different approaches 
to the result that we want to get, which is more inner freedom, you know, be able to express ourselves more clearly and more freely and enjoy our self-expression. I have a, a program called Watch Yourself on Video Without Cringing, because I feel that there's nothing like looking at yourself on video to elicit all those voices inside us that are, you know, that don't like us. And when we when we are able to have access to them so clearly as when we watch ourselves on a recording, then we can do something with that. And I, I actually, the way I, I see it is that we can take those actual voices and, and find other ways to be kinder and effective in the way that they speak and to consciously look for the things that we do like. So to forgive ourselves for our meanness, our unkindness, and to understand, well, what are these things that can actually be changed? And if we can change them, why be unhappy? Yes. That's what the Dalai Lama says. And if it can't, and if it can't be changed, why be unhappy? Let's learn to accept those things that we can't change and learn to just learn how to do those other things better. And we don't have to go through the drama. And is listen to the message behind things, but doesn't mean that we have to stay stuck with the negativity. Right. That I think is our tendency. We because let's it also has to do with our biology that doesn't play in our favor at that level. Negative emotions by design are strong. I like to use the image that the negative emotion and negative voices that are associated with negative emotions is like we are eating and we bite in a spicy chili pepper. Mm. We know it. There is no doubt. It's like because by design, we have to have that strong feeling to react, to activate, to freeze, to fly. Is how we are wired. They are really negative emotions are triggers by design. Positive emotions is more like having a wonderful meal with friends. We have an amazing time, can be even the best time, but not necessarily are aware of it. Yes. Because positive emotions is to uh, their survival values in the long term. It's not an immediately thing. It's about building connections, building resources, building relationships that absolutely are important for our survival as species and as individuals, but we don't see the consequences or the results immediately. So it's more difficult sometimes and it's more subtle. And that is why it's so important, the gratitude exercises to bring a little bit the spotlight to the positive. Because I love that, yeah. Why, uh, the other, speaking, because I think um, people relate with the image, that the image that I use in terms, it's a, a little bit a different angle, but when we are in the reactive mode um, uh, and even in the sympathetic nervous system that we are very uh, anxiety, okay, alert, what is next, is is like an accelerator of a sports car. A little touch, the our engine go full force. The parasympathetic system that is the one that allows us to relax is like a, a brake of a old car. We have to keep pedaling down for relaxing. And we have to learn to balance these two forces because we need both forces, but we have to yep know our instrument, know ourselves, and uh, be gentle, like you are saying, with ourselves, understand even the physiology behind it, and that will allow us to be in the spotlight, be seen, and make an impact out there, because why we want to be seen is to be able to make a bigger impact out there. Absolutely, and I love what you're talking about, the places where we already feel flow, where we already feel connection, and I 
always urge people to highlight those, to spotlight those and and make a mental image and a, a kinesthetic image of what that feels like, because that's what you want to practice, that feeling of flow, that feeling of ease, feeling grounded and open and, and, and strong inside. Love it. And the more you can practice that in your one-on-one conversations, on your phone, you know, in the grocery store, at work, the more that you can expand that into all the places that you speak. And, and that is the circle there that I love because is the practice is important, the rehearsal is important, but from the right foundation. Yes. Once you clear up the things, then let's practice. Let's let, do it and again and again and improve and delight and enjoy it. Beautifully said. So besides getting your book, that any sold in any place that sells books, they can get your book and your podcast, The Light in the Limelight. Where can people learn more about you? Well, I invite people to download my free preparation ritual checklist for preparing to speak because it goes through this other side of practicing, not what you want to say, but how you want to feel. And you can get that at lindayugalo.com forward slash rituals. And I will make sure that we'll put that link in the show notes of this episode too. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here today and for sharing your wisdom. I so enjoy chatting with you. Thank you for listening. And remember to visit mindset.com. Zone. Yes, instead of dot com, it's dot zone. There you can find all the episodes and other amazing resources, all at mindset.zone. As always, I'm so grateful you are here. Expand what's possible for you, for the ones around you for the world.